turn to the Bible now. So if you have a copy of the scriptures with you, would you turn with me please to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. A-C-T-S. I just say that because uh, the word Acts sounds sometimes like a, a, an axe that you cut a tree down with. Or, uh, but it's, uh, it's talking about the actions of the apostles. And this book is a, uh, a book which tells us what happened after Jesus went back to heaven. It tells us how the church spread and the gospel message of the Lord Jesus spread around the world. And what the disciples did next. <clears throat> And we're going <coughs> to, excuse me, break into a, uh, a particular part of the story in chapter 7 and verse 54. The story of a man called Stephen. When they heard this, this was the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin. The same group, by the way, that condemned Jesus to die on the cross. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city And began to stone him. Meanwhile the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. Please keep your Bibles open there. Back in the 1500s, one of the the men who changed the world and changed Europe, certainly at that time, was a gentleman by the name of William Tyndale. And William Tyndale started out not very far from here, at Gloucester, and he started preaching at Bristol. So he was uh, quite local to this area uh, in his younger days. But he made it his desire to translate the Bible into the mother tongue of the English people. Uh, up until then, it had been kept in Latin in Roman Catholic churches. And of course, nobody spoke Latin and nobody knew what the Bible said. But he said, I want to make it my goal so that even the boy who pulls the plow can know what the scriptures truly say. The only trouble with that was that made him a marked man. That was like strapping a target on his chest. And the Roman Catholic Church said, right boy, you've got to die. And they came hunting for him. They did everything they could to stop his Bible being shipped into the country uh, because it was being printed in Germany. And uh, they, they did everything they could to try and stop this. But God was using it and the gospel message was spreading as people began to read the Bible in their own language for the first time. It was revolutionary. Uh, But William Tyndale had to be a very cautious man because he knew people were out to get him. Unfortunately, he wasn't cautious enough. And on one occasion, he had a visit from a man by the name of Henry Phillips. William Tyndale was in Antwerp at that time. And Henry Phillips came to see him pretending to be a Christian and pretending to want help from him. 
And William Tyndale offered him his help and said that he would agree to meet with him. The unfortunate thing was, it was a trap. And William Tyndale was caught and he was put in prison for his crime of translating the Bible. And he was in prison for a year before eventually the death sentence was passed on him. And in 1535, William Tyndale was taken to the stake, strangled at the stake, and then burnt, his body burnt, uh, rather than being buried. And he became a martyr for the Christian faith and the message of the gospel. And his dying prayer is one that I use regularly when I pray for our king today. Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. (laughs) Open his eyes to see the truth that the people need the Bible in their own language. Well, the story of Christianity is actually the story of people like William Tyndale who laid down their lives for the gospel message. There's an old saying by a church historian that said this, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And as people have died for the faith, the gospel message has actually spread more rather than less. And what we're going to look at today is a case of that happening here in the story of Stephen. Because Stephen was the first martyr in the history of the church. Now I'd love to tell you today martyrdom was something that was only in the past. But I'm afraid to tell you martyrdom is still very much with us today. In fact it may surprise you to know that more Christians died for their faith last century than in all the centuries before put together including the Roman era. Isn't that a staggering thing? And uh, I collect newspaper cuttings. This one always uh, uh, touches my heart uh, about a, a young man called Gary and his wife Bonnie who went out to Lebanon to be missionaries and they were helping in the Palestinian refugee camps. She was helping uh, run uh, prenatal classes and things like this and they were Christians taking the gospel message as they took practical care. And uh, Muslim extremists shot his wife. And Gary himself said, God led us to Lebanon and we knew that we might die. It was a reality to them, but they were willing to do that to go and take the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I cut newspaper cuttings out and these are, these are, not, these are not recent. That one always speaks to me, by the way, because he was married about the same time as we were. So I think often about him, you know, as I think about ourselves, Heather and myself. But newspaper cuttings are full of reports of Christians who have died for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ across the years, even recently. And it's something which is still happening today. Now, when I say martyr, I want to make a clear distinction. I do not mean martyr in the same sense that the Muslims talk about a martyr. Because when they talk about martyrdom, they mean like a jihadist, a suicide bomber or something like that. Christian martyrs are not killing other people. They're being killed for their faith, but they're not going out killing other people. So just to avoid any confusion, I want to be clear about that. But martyrdom is something that hasn't gone away. And it's something that could still come in to this country again. One of the things we're seeing uh, is... uh, I'll come come back to that in a minute. But Stephen, when he died, he died by stoning. I've I've got to say this in this order because... uh, 
I'm getting a bit confused here. Uh, because uh, Stephen was stoned. Now, in the Bible, there are ten people who are stoned in the Bible. Interesting, the first five people were all stoned judiciously, judiciously uh, or, or justly, and the last five were stoned unjustly, and Stephen was the ninth. But martyrdom is not something that has gone away, and it is still something that is uh, a, a danger to us today. Even anti-Christian sentiment is growing strong in the West, uh, where it had been strong only in the East uh, before the Reform- uh, after the Reformation. I don't know if any of you have seen this, but uh, uh, there has been a lot of uh, criticism over Target shops in America. Target is a big superstore um, that uh, uh, is, is, is makes clothes for people as well as everything else. And they made a whole range of T-shirts and things for Gay Pride Month. And this was one of the ones, a picture of a guillotine. And the motto at the top is a headrest for those who are homophobic. And that, that's on display for children and things like that. It tells us that if we hold on to Christian values, that's what they think we're worthy of. And you may think, oh, I'll never come to that. Well, read the book of Revelation. Because how the people die in the book of Revelation is by beheading. And uh, beheading was only cancelled out in France. Uh, I think it was back in the 1970s. It's something that isn't that far away. So without having a a persecution complex or uh, trying to stir fear or anything like that, we have to face the fact that martyrdom is a reality in the Christian life today. And just as the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, as I was telling the children earlier, take up your cross and follow me. So we need to be ready to do the same as well. When Jesus called people to become a Christian, he made it very clear it could cost you. It could cost you the ultimate price. But as one martyr who was a missionary to the Indians in Ecuador, a man by the name of Jim Elliot uh, once said, he is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. (laughs) And if you give up what you can't keep in this life to gain the rewards and blessings of heaven, then you're not a fool. And it's worth whatever it costs to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And Stephen shows us that in his testimony here as the first martyr of the church. Now, who was Stephen? Well, he was one of the original deacons in the church. If you just turn back to chapter 6, you'll see back in chapter 6, the church hit a crisis. And uh, in the crisis, they had a a practical need in the church, which was putting pressure on the apostles to do something. And the danger was that they would stop preaching the Bible and telling the people about the Lord Jesus to deal with this practical crisis. But to avoid that, they appointed some other people to to do the practical work. Verse 3 of chapter 6 says, Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. 
And Stephen was one of those disciples who became uh, a servant in the church, helping out. But he wasn't just a practical man. He was also a very spiritual man, as it says. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he was ready to speak for Jesus at any opportunity. And in the rest of chapter 6, what we see is he was caught in a conversation with people. And again, it was a setup, like with William Tyndale, to trap him and to bring him to court. And the people who were anti-Christian brought him to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court, for trial. And in chapter 7, he gave a sermon, a message in his defense uh, to the, the Sanhedrin. It's a long sermon. It's a sermon which is actually a history lesson on the Old Testament. But it is a powerful sermon when you understand what's going on. Because he shows them why they need to turn to the Lord. Now, I won't preach two messages today. I'll save the study of Acts chapter 7, Stephen's sermon for another day. But it got under their skin. And as a result, when the end came of him speaking, they didn't wait for a verdict. They rushed him out of the city, out of the temple courts, out of the nearest gate, which was this gate here, which is called the St. Stephen's Gate in Jerusalem, after Stephen, who died just out here, and they stoned him to death outside this, this gate. It was quite an event. And I want us to see this and learn some practical things spiritually this morning uh, from this story. I want to see Stephen's comfort, Stephen's convert, Stephen's cry, and Stephen's conclusion. So simple points, but I hope it'll bless us to consider these things this morning. First of all, Stephen's comfort. You'll notice in the Bible in verse 54, it says, When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. They were angry with a deep hatred. And the gnashing of the teeth was something which was uh, like a cultural thing you did when you were angry. Uh, It was like grinding your teeth or, or snarling at people. And it was a way of showing frustration. In our day and age, we hoot the horns on our cars. In their, in their days, they gnashed their teeth. Okay, and this is what they did. They heard Stephen and they were furious at him. But look what happened in verse uh, 55. Stephen surely knows what's going to happen. He says, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now this was an amazing thing. Stephen stood, looked up and heaven was opened before him. In Greek the phrase that it means the heavens were opened and it's the same phrase used in Acts chapter 10. You remember when Peter saw the heavens opened and the sheep come down with the animals on? It's the same word that's used for the opening of the heavens. He saw heaven part, whether he saw the clouds move, whether he saw uh, 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 the literal uh, 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 opening in, in the heavenly realms or whether it was just a vision, I don't know. But he looked up and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, this was a phenomenal thing to see. For a start, it was something we only knew by faith before. And that is that Jesus had gone to heaven and was at the right hand of God. Now, the disciples knew that by faith because when Jesus ascended uh, in Acts chapter 1, they saw him go up. But 
They didn't know that he was sitting at the right hand of God. They only knew that from the Bible. And they were happy with that. They rested their faith on the Bible. The Bible said it. It's true. And Peter on the day of Pentecost said about the Holy Spirit coming. This is proof to us that, you know, Jesus is sat at the right hand of God. And he's poured out the Holy Spirit, which you now see and hear. But here, faith turns to sight, as it always will. And Stephen saw with his eye Jesus standing At the right hand of God. And the glory of God. The Shekinah glory. uh, God's manifestation of his glory. Which was seen in the temple in days past. In heaven with Christ there. At the right hand of God. This was an amazing thing to see. And I love verse 55 by the way. Because you've got the whole trinity. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. All in one verse. But then in verse 56. Stephen said look. I see heaven opened. And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What he saw was amazing. He said he saw the Son of Man and he used that phrase. Now that phrase had been used once before to this same group of people. Anybody remember who it was who said it? It was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. When he was on his, in his trial before going to the cross, he said, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. And he says to this same group of people who condemned Jesus, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of heaven. Mm -hmm. This was making them feel very uncomfortable and very upset. And the fact that he is standing at the right hand of God is very significant as well. Because in the Bible, we're told very clearly that the Lord Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that when Christ ascended, he sat down at the right hand of God. And it's a a, a description showing that Christ has finished his work. He's finished his work of saving us. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. I've paid for it all. There's nothing more to do. And when he went to heaven, he went and sat down. It was a a description that no priest on earth, something that no priest on earth ever got to do was to sit down. But Christ did because he finished his work. And yet here we see him standing at the right hand of God. Now, why is he standing? Some people say that Jesus is getting ready to welcome Stephen. Oh, Stephen's coming. I better stand up and welcome him. I've got to be honest with you. That doesn't sit rightly with me. Jesus Christ doesn't have to stand up for anybody. He sits on the throne in glory. So I don't think that's what it means. What it means, actually, if we see other scriptures, is that Jesus was getting ready to act. If we uh, consider two Old Testament scriptures, in Isaiah chapter 3.13, it says this, The Lord takes his place in court. He rises, or literally he stands, to judge the people. And that's what Jesus was doing. He saw Stephen about to be stoned to death, and he stood up, I'm going to judge Psalm 35 puts it as a prayer. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Arise and come to my aid. And there's many verses in the Old Testament about God standing in such a way uh, uh, as this for, for acts of judgment. He will stand and shepherd his flocks, says Micah chapter 5 and so on. So it's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ standing to defend his church defend Peter Stephen and we'll see how Stephen responds to that in just a moment but you know what a comfort that was to Stephen in the hour of his greatest trial that the Lord gave him that vision of himself 
What an amazing thing. And you know what? It hasn't been the only time God has sent comfort to martyrs who've been about to die for the faith. A few years ago, I read this little book called Faithful Unto Death. It was a story of the martyrs who died in the reign of Queen Mary in the 1500s. And there were 300 martyrs who died at the hands of the Roman Catholic Church in this country uh, uh, at the hand of Queen Mary uh, and, and the Roman Catholic Church. I was always interested in that because 300 is the number of the remnant in the Bible. You remember like Gideon's men. And uh, they, they sealed their testimony with their blood to Jesus Christ. And one of them was a young boy by the name of William, uh, William Hunter. That's it, I was going to say. He, he was William Hunter of Brentwood. I wanted to say William Brentwood, but I knew it wasn't right. William Hunter of Brentwood. And he was a young boy of 19 years old, same age as my son, Samuel. And uh, he wanted to read the Bible and he went into a, a church and saw a Bible and wanted to read it and started trying to read it. And a Roman Catholic priest caught him and said, if you're seen doing that again, you'll be dead. Well, he crept in again and wanted to read the Bible and they saw him and he had to run away. He had to flee and he went and, uh, 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 and lived in the woods for a while. But one day he came back to see his parents because he didn't want to get them in trouble. So he stayed away, but he came back to his parents and unfortunately he was caught and he was taken to Brentwood to be burnt at the stake. And in the book, Faithful Unto Death, it says this, while he was chained to the stake, a pardon was offered if he would recant. This he refused, and amidst jeers, threats, taunts, and taunts, the flames leaped around him. He exclaimed amid the fires, I'm not afraid, Lord. Lord, receive my spirit. He then prayed, Son of God, shine upon me. And immediately the sun broke through the dark clouds, and the light shone upon his face. It was as though God gave him an outward visible sign that prayer was heard in heaven, his dwelling place. And uh, that was a comfort like Stephen, the Lord gave. As another one that I find even more exciting, actually, and that was at the trial of John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe, the man who translated the Bible into English before Tyndale, uh, he did it from the, the Vulgate, the Latin, which wasn't such a good translation because it wasn't from the original manuscripts, but it was the best at the time. Uh, and he also paid the price for doing that. And in 1378, they brought John Wycliffe into Blackfriars Monastery in London and put him on trial. But just as the trial was about to begin, there was an earthquake that shook the building. Now, everybody lived. There wasn't any damage done. And John Wycliffe was still on trial. But everybody knew God did that. And John Wycliffe knew God was with him, even in this hour. What a gracious God we serve. He doesn't leave us. Even though he, he calls us to take up our cross and follow him, he comes to us and comforts us even in the hour of death. Do you know such a God who will do that for you? Who will comfort you in the hour of death? You know, the biggest thing in life you're going to face is death. And you know, the army have got a little motto. It says this, time of peace, prepare for war. In other words, make the most of the time now to get ready for what's coming in the future. And that's what we've got to do spiritually. We've got to get ready for that last day of our lives. Prepare for the last day 
And I believe the best way to do that is to come to know the Lord who will help us in that hour. So the first thing we see is his comfort. The second thing we see is his convert. Because in verse 57, we read this. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. You can tell they weren't open to reason. Uh, They covered their ears, they blocked them off so they couldn't hear, and they yelled so that they couldn't hear him talking anymore, and they rushed at him. And verse 58, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Now, stoning, according to uh, Ray Comfort in a book called The Key to Heaven, lasts about 15 minutes. Uh, uh, he saw a stoning of a Muslim princess uh, recorded in the news, and they said it took about 15 minutes. This Muslim princess had been caught uh, in adultery, and so they stoned her. And you think about that, that's quite an ordeal, isn't it? They used to take the the people and put them down in a pit or down in a valley, and Jerusalem has a valley around the side, and then they would throw stones down on top of them. And... uh, we, we read that these people were doing it and they were doing it energetically. And look what it says in verse 58. Meanwhile, the witnesses, and that's a key phrase because they're witnesses according to the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 17.7. They believe they're witnesses to a crime, what he has said, but they're not. Uh, but the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, they have a man there who's going to look after their clothes, their cloaks while they're throwing stones at, uh, at Stephen. And he's there looking after the stuff. And in fact, in chapter 8, verse 1, it says Saul was there giving approval to his death. Now, who was Saul? Well, if you know your Bible, in a few chapters' time, we're going to read of Saul again. But he has a change. He's brought to salvation in Jesus Christ. And his name becomes Paul. The Apostle Paul. In fact, Saul was really his Jewish name and Paul was his Roman name. But there seems to be a change of usage uh, marking the change in his life uh, 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 with that. But Paul was there, Saul was there as a young man watching what happened. And do you know what? As he watched, he was there approving because he was a Pharisee. He didn't agree with these Christians and what they were saying. And he thought, yeah, this is right. We've got to stop this nonsense, these Christians doing this. And he was giving approval to Stephen's death. But you know what? While he was watching it and listening, it was all going in. It was all going in. And the seed of the word of God always makes its mark and has power. And as it came into Stephen, into Saul, little did he know God was working in him to bring him to salvation. And later on, Saul himself was converted. And it's interesting that theologians believe you can trace Paul's theology uh, and the things he taught, a lot of the things he taught, back to Stephen's sermon. He learned from what he heard that day. And even his last letter and his last chapter, chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, is very like Stephen's words, asking the Lord to forgive and uh, the Lord to stand with him in his trials. What an amazing thing to think that in the midst of his darkest hour, Stephen had the brightest convert. It's fantastic, isn't it? It's the greatness of God. It's like the Lord Jesus when he died on the cross and the thief on the cross was saved next to him. How great our God is. And John Wesley makes this comment. He says, oh Saul, could you have believed if someone had told you 
that you yourself would be stoned in the same cause as Stephen and would triumph in committing your soul likewise to Jesus, whom you're now blaspheming. His dying prayer reached you as well as many others, and the martyr Stephen and Saul the persecutor are now joined in everlasting friendship and dwell together in happy company of those who've made their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. Great point, isn't it? Uh, to think of, uh, of, of, of Paul appreciating that. And you know, this is what God does. And very often, somebody is there who is a witness when we're not aware of it. And our testimony will speak to them. There was a, a, a man in uh, Angola by the name of Colonel George. J-O-R-G-E. And uh, I read his testimony in a Gideon magazine some years back because when the Gideons went into Angola, the Gideons are the people who give away free Bibles uh, on behalf of the church. They, they went to Angola and they joined up with some Christians out there. And one of them was this man who had been a, a commander in the communists' army. And he had made it his goal to stamp out Christianity. And in the, in the story, he tells how he would literally kill people if they were Christians, because that was what the communists were committed to doing. He said, by the age of 16, I was already an officer and was appointed to attend a course for, for communist countries in Russia and then participated in two other courses in Cuba which preached more radical ideas. This caused me to hate God even more and hunt those followers of his church. I went to a point where I crashed into a church of a small congregation and proclaimed myself a communist not really knowing or understanding the profound and confusing ideas of his philosophy. The truth is that I was a terror to my own shadow. I hit Christians with chains and even tortured my father for opposing my communist convictions. He said, I also went to the point of breaking up my engagement and business commitment for only for the only reason that these people were Christians. One of my worst actions was when I had an evangelical pastor condemned to death for treason against the country. Just before being executed, this pastor asked me to pray for him. Asked, sorry, asked to pray for me. After that, he gave me his New Testament, a Gideon New Testament, and exhorted me to read Romans chapter 10, verse 20. I was found by those who did not seek me, said God. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I read the verse, but at this point I couldn't understand it, as I was in a hurry to carry on my mission of execution. I only know that I felt a great deal of fear inside me at the moment of executing this saint of God. I carried this burden with me for many years before and after I converted to Christ. After the massive disintegration of the European communist countries in 1991, I was left extremely confused and defeated by the daily news of how communism was rapidly disintegrating. The situation frustrated all my aspirations. However, among all my evil practices, my mind was deeply scared by the moment of the pastor's tragic execution and the message he left me. That man was prepared and willing to die for Christ. 
He didn't want to do it before he had fulfilled his teachings of his master Jesus and begging God for forgiveness. But he didn't want to do it before he fulfilled the teachings of his master Jesus and begged God for the forgiveness of my sins. The only thing he wanted was to intercede for my salvation and his prayer was heard and answered by God. This prayer is certainly registered in the memorial of the saints' prayers that were killed in this world for the cause of Christ's gospel. Twenty years later, in 1998, in Luanda, I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Saviour. And for me, this was so profound and impressive as the words preached in that sermon were the exact words given to me by my victim. At that moment, I couldn't see anyone else but him, the pastor, talking to me. The pastor I killed. I was horrified and finally gave up and let my body fall to the ground. I cried in repentance, a thing that I'd never done before. Amazing, isn't it? How God reached that man uh, uh, with the testimony of that dying saint. So let's make it our prayer as well, friends. If we know the Lord Jesus Christ, let's pray. God, I want to bear witness to you to my last breath. Let my last breath even be a testimony to you. Let me win souls to Jesus right up to the end. And if we don't yet know Christ, let's see what happened with Stephen and see how he was so sure of going to heaven. And let's turn to the Lord ourselves. Billy, Billy Sunday, the great preacher, said, Don't let God hang a for rent sign on your mansion in heaven. Send word up to him that you want that place. And tell him you're coming. I agree. Finally, thirdly, we see here Stephen's cry in verse 59. It said, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. One of the, the, the missionaries I, I greatly admire is uh, a man by the name uh, of uh, David Livingstone. And I'm sure you know David Livingstone as an explorer, but he was a great missionary for the gospel of Christ. And when they found David Livingstone uh, dead in his tent as an older man, they found him kneeling in the position of prayer against his bed. He died praying. What a beautiful thing that is. Well, Stephen died praying as well. And his last two prayers were two prayers that he learned from the Lord Jesus Christ when he died on the cross. Mm -hmm. The first was, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You remember Jesus said that, didn't he? He said, Father, uh, into your hands I commit my spirit, based on, I think it's Psalm 31. Well, Stephen prayed and asked the Lord Jesus to receive his spirit. And by the way, do you notice, that's interesting, he prayed to the Lord Jesus. That's because the Lord Jesus is God. And we can pray to the Lord Jesus as well as to God the Father. There are many prayers in the Bible where we pray to the Lord Jesus. In fact, the last one of the last prayers in the Bible is, come Lord Jesus, come. It's a prayer to him. Uh, The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Uh, So he prayed, Lord, receive my spirit. And he was trusting himself to the Lord when he died. And that's something you and I should do too, uh, ahead of time and in the hour. But then in verse 60, then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He prayed for their forgiveness. The Lord Jesus did the same thing, you remember, on the cross. 
Amazingly, the Lord Jesus prayed for the very people who were crucified. And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing in Luke 23. Well, Stephen did the same thing and he prayed, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Now, why did Stephen do that? Why was Stephen? Because not everybody in the Bible did it. If you read in the book of 2 Chronicles in chapter 20, there was a man by the name of Zechariah who was the son of a godly priest by the name of Jehoiada. And Jehoiada had saved the life of King Joash when he was a little boy and he had been his guide. And when Jehoiada died, Joash turned wicked. And he went against all the things that Jehoiada had taught him in his kindness. And this little boy whose life had been saved, he became wicked. And Zechariah, Jehoiada's son, said, you got, this is wrong. This is not what my father taught you. And you know what he said? Take him out and stone him. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, we read Jehoiada's son, Zechariah, prayed, God, remember this sin. And God brought judgment on the nation at that time. But Stephen didn't do that. He prayed for their forgiveness. Why did he do that? Well, he'd seen the Lord Jesus Christ stand up in heaven. He was getting ready to judge. Now, here's an interesting little factor for you. One year before this day, some Bible scholars say it was on the day, but I'm not enough of an expert to tell you that. But one year before this day, the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke 13 told a parable about a fig tree. And he said that the man had a fig tree and it bore no fruit. And he came looking for three years and there was no fruit on the fig tree. And Jesus was saying, that's what it's been like for me here for three years in my ministry. I've been looking for fruit from Israel, response to the gospel, and you've not responded. And he said, said to the man, cut it down. And the man said, no, give it one more year. And if it doesn't bear fruit then, then cut it down. And they said, all right, we'll give it one more year. Do you know that was one year to that day that Stephen was brought to be stoned. And the Lord Jesus was standing up ready to judge the nation. But the, 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 the prayer of Stephen, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. It brought a little bit more grace before AD 70 came and the judgment came 40 years later. And the Lord gave a little bit more grace to that nation to repent. What an amazing prayer that was. And you know what, dear friends, it's not easy to forgive, is it, in such situations. But may God give us the grace to forgive and to pray for others to have more time to come to know and love him. I was touched by this newspaper article. You know, we've had that terrible accident this week with the Land Rover that killed the children. uh, And that was terrible. Well, uh, in 2018, this elderly gentleman did something similar and plowed into this Indian gentleman here and uh, killed, Indonesian, I should say, uh, gentleman, and killed him and nearly killed his daughter as they were crossing a road. And he all went to court and the old man should have gone to prison But the family were born-again Christians and they pleaded with the judge. They said, we believe in forgiveness. We forgive this man. We want you to forgive him too. And they let him off the court case. You know, that takes some doing, doesn't it? That takes real grace. But God gave him that grace to be able to do it. May God give us the grace too in such hours.
The final thing I want you to see here is is Stephen's conclusion as we bring it to a close here uh, at the end of verse 60. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, what a beautiful description that is of a Christian's death. You know, in the Bible, there's a distinction in the terminology used. When a non-Christian dies, it says they died. When a Christian dies, it says they fall asleep. Now, what a beautiful difference it is, because for us, we know where we're going. And death isn't a terrifying prospect. It's as lovely as getting into bed at night. You know, me and my wife, we have a date every night. And when we start the day, sometimes I say, I'm going to meet you back here tonight. Uh, We just love going to bed at the end of the day and falling asleep, don't you? And you know what? This, This is what Stephen was like when he died. He didn't die wrestling, fighting. Oh, no, no, save my life, save my life. He knew where he was going. He was at peace, just like getting into bed. And he fell asleep. And the Lord graciously, graciously and gently took him. You know, we write rest in peace on many gravestones. But it's not true in every case. But it is for those who know the Lord. They fall asleep in Jesus. doesn't mean they're not conscious. They're face to face with the Lord. And to be with the Lord is better by far, said Paul. But it means that they're resting from their labors and their bodies are able to go to sleep. And I love Pilgrim's Progress. When Faithful died, uh, Faithful was Christian's friend in the story, Pilgrim's Progress. It's it's not a Bible story. It's just uh, a Christian uh, fable. But it it has Christian and Faithful go to the town of Vanity Fair uh, and uh, they are there uh, accused of crimes and against the king who is the devil and uh, faithful is taken and he is burnt at the stake after a, a long trial. And John Bunyan says this, Now I saw that there stood behind the multitude who were killing him a chariot and a couple of horses waiting for faithful who so soon as his adversaries had dispatched him was taken up into it and straightway was carried through the clouds with the sound of trumpet, the nearest way to the celestial gate. And I think that's what it was like for Stephen too. You couldn't see them, but the angels were there, ready to take Stephen as soon as he died. And he fell asleep into the arms of Jesus. What about you? Will that be you? I hope so. If you come to know and love the Lord, then that can be your happy experience too. Stephen gives us a challenge, doesn't it? Are we ready to die for Christ? We need to be. Be thou faithful unto death, he said. The Lord Jesus said in Revelation 2.10. And I will give you a crown of life. The word crown there is the word Stephanos. A Stephen crown. Be thou faithful unto death. And we must be ready to live for him too. May the Lord help each and every one of us.